We're moving right along in Ephesians. We are looking at Ephesians 7 through 14 today. On Saturday, June 8th, 2002, a year after New Tribes missionaries Martin and Gracia Burnham were kidnapped by the Abu Sayyaf, government commandos ambushed the terrorists attempting to free captives. Tragically, in a two-hour exchange of gunfire, Martin Burnham was killed. Gracia was suffered, or suffered a gunshot wound in her leg, survived because her husband's lifeless body rolled over on top of her. Her captors could not tell if she was dead or alive. Returning home to her three children in Kansas, Gracia was filled with bittersweet emotions. She was indescribably grateful for being set free, but she was somberly aware that her release had not been without a gut-wrenching cost, the death of her husband. Nonetheless, she saw his death as, as a part of God's plan. That is God's liking. Gracia humbly observed that probably was Martin's destiny. In the same way, freedom from sin is free, but it is not cheap. It costs Jesus the cross. It's free, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus the cross. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 14. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Today, we are going to examine some of the details of these verses. We'll extract some of the principles being taught and God willing, we will identify some practical applications for our lives. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Paul starts this verse off by listing some of the most important riches of God's grace. Remember, grace is defined in general as the undeserved acceptance and love received from another. One source said the most characteristic use of the word grace in the Bible is to refer to an undeserved favor granted by a superior to an inferior. 
And grace, when used of divine grace toward mankind, refers to the undeserved favor of God in providing salvation for the deserving condemnation. It's undeserved favor of God. Paul says that God's grace was made to abound or exist in large quantities toward us in wisdom and prudence. God has given us so much that we do not deserve. And in these verses, Paul lists four of the blessings that we have as Christians through the blood of Jesus Christ. And they are redemption, the forgiveness of sins, wisdom, and prudence. Redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, and prudence. What does it mean that we have redemption in Jesus? One of the big points of this letter to the Ephesians was Paul's encouragement that they, believers, have a new identity in Jesus. And to answer the question of what redemption is, we have to understand our old identity before Jesus. According to the Bible, non-Christians are physically alive, but are in bondage to sin and enslaved to evil to a broken world, and to our own fleshly desires. Essentially, non-believers or non-Christians are in rebellion against God and according to the principles of justice, deserve his wrath for that rebellion. God's wrath on those who rebel against him, to those who choose sin over him, is eternal death or eternal separation from God in hell. Unfortunately, this includes every single person on the planet. Everyone owes retribution for sin that we cannot afford because the price is eternal and therefore can never be paid off. According to our passage today, in him we have redemption through his blood. Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to pay that debt for us. Notice Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You could think of redemption as Jesus clearing out our debt with God, leaving us free from bondage, free from the bondage of sin, and free from the wrath of God's eternal judgment. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. To have redemption through Jesus Christ literally means to be saved from eternal death, from hell. And it means we have been forgiven for our sins. Why does the forgiveness of sins even matter? Why can't God just let us into heaven without that? One source said, forgiveness in the Bible is a release or a dismissal of something. A release or a dismissal of something. The forgiveness we have in Christ involves the release of sinners from God's just penalty and the complete dismissal of all charges against us. Notice Colossians 1.14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
Forgiveness is essential to salvation. When we were redeemed or when our debt was paid, the record was wiped clean. And past, present, and future sins have been paid for. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus Christ said our debt was paid in full by his sacrifice. And so our sin was wiped out. The reason this was so essential and the reason we cannot go to heaven without our sin being forgiven is that God is a God of justice. One writer said the justice of God can be defined as the essential and infinite attribute which makes his nature and his ways the perfect embodiment of equity and constitutes him the model and the guardian of equity throughout the universe. God said sin was bad, and therefore if God were to let bad into what he called good, it would no longer be good. God is perfect, and therefore can only allow perfection to be with him, and by Jesus paying the debt and wiping our slate clean, he has clothed us in Jesus' perfection. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Wisdom and prudence. Not only have Christians been redeemed and forgiven, we have been given wisdom and prudence. We now know the difference between right and wrong according to God. God has not only given us a conscience, but he's blessed us with the Holy Bible, which allows us through the Holy Spirit to understand what he, God, wants from us. We have the ability to make wise choices despite living in a fallen world. And we can cautiously proceed with good judgment. I read about a man that struggled with overconfident intelligentsia while living in Boston. He said, I would leave the town of Lexington where my family and I lived and I would drive past the towers of Harvard University. Another mile down the road on the left sits the campus of MIT and to the right, the campus of Boston University. Straight ahead was the towering headquarters of many great multi-international corporations. There were moments when I was tempted to be intimidated by these unmitigated, unadulterated symbols of power. Here were great world leaders being trained in the business school at Harvard. Over at MIT, signals bounced off of Mars every 30 seconds. In those towers, decisions were being made that created and destroyed economies all over the world. And who was I? What was our congregation with this Christian gospel trying to preach? That's what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were intimidated by all the talk of a so-called intelligent people who said the cross is silliness. Paul tells us not to buy it. It has never been true and it is not true today. God is going to show the wisdom of men and women to be rank foolishness. 
For the wise, the cross must be its central place. It's easy sometimes to fall victim to fancy talk of those who control the world. The evil ones who say God is not real. God is who you want him to be. God is different for everyone. Each person creates their own God. God is a state of mind. And on and on, the smart, educated people go telling other people who is and what things are. And, but we, those who are faithful in Jesus Christ, have been given wisdom. We know who God is and what he has done for us on the cross because he has made that known to us. Notice Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Speaking of wisdom and prudence, notice God has made known to us the mystery of his will which simply means God has made known to us a truth that was once hidden from us and has now been made known. Romans eleven twenty five. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has revealed to us that which was previously unknown, God's plan of salvation. In and through Jesus, those who believe have been chosen for eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And according to verse 9, he did this according to his good pleasure, which he poured out in himself. One source said, from all eternity, the Father cherished in his own mind a plan to be put into effect in Christ. It pleased God to reveal his plan of salvation to those who would be his for eternity, those who are called to be Christians. Notice that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Dispensation in simple terms means a symbol of order existing at a particular time. It's a system of order existing at a particular time. And the word is derived from the Latin and it's commonly used to translate the Greek word, okionomia. I put a little accent on there to make it sound more authentic. <laughs> Which refers to the law or management of a house. The verb means to manage, to administer, to regulate, or to plan. And in this case, Paul is referring to a plan of the fullness of the times, which appears as a future phenomenon. According to some scholars, there are at least three dispensations of God's dealing with mankind that are evident, which are past, present, and future. The fullness of the times would be the conclusion of God's plan, the end, so to speak. 
I'm going to be honest with you guys and say that I'm not an expert on dispensationalism, which is essentially a system of biblical interpretation. But essentially, we are currently in what is called the church age. And as one source says, the Christian era has still to run its course. However, and not until its close, will God's eternal purpose come to full fruition. And so at the fullness of the times, God will gather together all those on earth and in heaven that are in Christ to himself. Those that are in Christ to himself. Through God's grace, we have become Christians and received an understanding of his will, including some information regarding his past, present, and future plans, which will in time play out, ending with God's gathering of his Christians to himself. God has not left anything to chance. He is in complete control of the situation. A 2012 article from MIT's technology review explored a substance that still has scientists baffled, ice. The article states, ice is one of the best studied materials on earth. It has shaped our planet and plays a critical role in atmospheric and ocean physics. Life as we know it would be impossible without it. And the solar system is filled with it. So you could be forgiven for thinking that science Intense focus on this material has revealed more or less all there is to know about ice. That the problem of ice has been more or less solved. But nothing could be further from the truth. The article explains that ice is still a complex substance that mystifies researchers. Hence the title of the article, The Mysterious Challenge of Understanding Ice. A group of scientists at the frontiers of ice research explain that we still have a remarkable variety of open questions about ice. For example, chemists still don't understand how ice structures form in the first place. Atmospheric physicists would dearly like to know how ice grows in the atmosphere. Questions remain about snow physics and sea ice. Beyond Earth, we still don't know much about the ice in ice comets. Scientists also don't know much about the ice that forms on the icy moons of the outer solar system. Given all these questions to explore, the article concluded that we live in exciting times for ice research. Mysteries are those things that are impossible or difficult to understand, like ice. They're impossible or difficult to understand, like ice, or, or like trying to understand God. It's a mystery because we are sinners and are imperfect. And he is good and perfect. And therefore, all things God are mysterious, except those things that he has revealed to us, such as his plan of salvation, such as his plan to reunite a sinful, broken people back to himself in Christ when he is done with his plan. God has made known to us the mystery of his will, and that involves restoring the harmony of the universe through Jesus Christ. Notice Romans 8, 18 through 21. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And that is not all that we have received. God's blessings are endless. Notice Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? In him, that's Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. That is a very important fact. We have not received anything outside of Jesus. We do not get entry into heaven because we go to church or because we study the Bible or because we think we know more than someone else and we leave rude comments on Facebook about them. I will give you an example. Have any of you ever heard of John MacArthur? He's very famous, preacher, teacher, works down in Southern California. I quote him all the time because to me, he's one of those super smart people who has spent his life learning and teaching the Bible. And he knows it better than most people. And he's admired by millions of people for his knowledge. His inheritance comes from the same source as mine and yours, Jesus Christ. It's not dependent on how awesome you are. It is completely of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 through 14, 11 through 14. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined. Being predestined. We talked about predestination previously. And speaking of John MacArthur, he said, Before the earth was formed, God's sovereignty determined that every elect sinner, however vile, useless, and deserving of death, by trusting in Christ, would be made righteous. He chose us to be his, and notice it was according to the purpose of his works, of he who works all things. God has not only chosen us, he has given us the necessary power to complete his work. In him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Notice, according to the counsel of his will. Therefore, we may not always understand why he does what he does, but it's important to understand that it is according to the counsel of his will, that it be this way and that those who trust in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Regardless of how you feel about yourself, regardless of your mental health issues or your physical issues, 
your sinful nature, regardless of the mistakes that you have made, the mistakes that you are making right now, or the mistakes that you will make, God has chosen you to be Christians. And according to what we've been reading, it is to the praise of his glory. That means that when God has redeemed someone, when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ and receives God's forgiveness of sins, they are fulfilling his supreme purpose. Even the Christians you don't like. Be careful not to glory yourself. The late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I will not glory even in my orthodoxy, for even that can become a snare if I make it a god. Let us rejoice in him in all his fullness and in him alone. Orthodoxy means generally accepted doctrine. So even if you're one of those super smart people and you know the Bible and doctrine perfectly, make sure that you give all the glory to God and not to yourself. In him, you have also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, it's vital that people hear the gospel. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How can anyone understand the purpose of God's will without hearing it? They cannot. This is why Jesus says to all of us to share the good news with the world. And then in addition to hearing the good news, a person must believe it. Notice John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, in him we have trusted. Have you ever wondered what faith means? Faith means to trust in something fully. It means to trust in something fully. Notice when you eat dinner at your dinner table and you sit in a chair, you don't think to yourself, even for a second, I wonder if this chair is going to hold me. I wonder if the legs are sturdy enough. You just sit and you expect it to hold. And we should have that same attitude towards Jesus. He is God. And he is trustworthy and he is deserving of our faith. Notice this last part of our passage. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is essentially like an official mark of identification that a person puts on a letter. For those of you who are too young to remember, people used to send messages on paper called letters. They would put these letters in envelopes and seal them by licking the glue that was provided and pressing it closed. Then they would write the destination address on it and the return address and add postage. Then that letter would go from the writer to the intended recipient. Sealing the envelope was a form of security. It allows everyone who encounters that letter to know that this was intended for a particular person in place and no one else. Well, in the same way, God has given us his Holy Spirit, which has essentially sealed us for eternal salvation. It is, he has sealed us for eternal salvation. We as Christians belong to God. And our destination is heaven. We are not for anyone else. And because of that seal, regardless of who comes into contact with us, we have the security of the seal and will reach our destination as intended. Tim Keller said he would never forget the story about 
one of his mentors, a college professor named Addison Leach. Two young women at the college were both bright and their respected parents wanted them to get master's degrees and go on to careers. But instead they both came or they both became Christians. Both both decided that they would going to become missionaries. Their parents had a fit. One of the mothers called Dr. Leach, thinking that Dr. Leach was one of the reasons that the girls had become, in the mother's words, religious fanatics. Rather than pursuing the course they had hoped, getting a career and having security, instead, they were going to go wildly off into the blue. This mother said, we wanted our daughter to get a master's degree, start a career, and get something in the bank so she could have some security. Dr. Leach responded, Please let me just remind you of something. We are all on a little ball of rock called Earth, and we're spinning along through space at zillions of miles per hour. Even if we don't run into anything, eventually we're all going to die. This means that under every single one of us, there's a trap door that's going to open one day, and we're going to fall off this ball of rock. And underneath will either be the everlasting arms of God or absolutely nothing. So maybe we can get a master's degree to get some security, but the biggest savings account in the world cannot stop cancer. It cannot stop traffic accidents. It cannot stop broken hearts. It can't give you anything, any of the things that only God can give you. He's the only significance you can have. He's the only love that you can get and can't lose. So let's recap, extract, and apply. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Principle 1. As Christians, Jesus Christ has set us free. Remember, we have been redeemed. We have been forgiven by God's grace. We have been set free. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we use that freedom? Notice Colossians 3.1. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Let me give you a few ways you can do that. Application one. We should not let our minds be influenced by the world. It's clear to see that this world has turned upside down on itself, claiming that bad things are good and good things are bad. We must do all that we can to remove the values and habits associated with a non-Christian worldview from our lives. You may have to do an evaluation of your life. You may have to let go of some of the things that are distracting you and manipulating your mindset. This is not easy. It requires work. But it is vital to those who no longer want to live a life of bondage, but rather a life of freedom. We should allow the Bible to influence our minds. The Bible 
This means that we need to spend some time reading the Bible, searching the Bible, and studying the Bible. I've met lots of people who say, I just don't have a lot of time. Or I've tried to read the Bible, but I just, I don't understand it. Listen, with modern day technology, there are countless ways to consume God's word. You can read the Bible. You can listen to the Bible. You can write out the Bible on paper. You can study commentaries of your favorite biblical authors. You can join Bible studies. You can subscribe to weekly scripture emails. There are endless ways to allow God's word to influence your mind. And all you have to do is pick one or two of them. It's not easy. It requires work. But it's vital to those who no longer want to live in a life of bondage, but rather a life of freedom. And we should do our best to resist the evil one. Remember, we are essentially in a battle, and Satan is not happy that Jesus has freed you. And so he will attempt to bind you up, but we can resist him. Notice 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be diligent, vigilant, because your adversary, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have to be sober and vigilant. We have to be paying attention to what's happening around us if we're going to resist the evil one. Again, it's not easy. It requires work. But it's vital to those who no longer want to live a life of bondage, but rather a life of freedom. To seek God's wisdom, we have to constantly remind ourselves that we are God's. And we have to remember that he has given us access to him through daily prayer and daily devotion. We should ask God to give us the wisdom to navigate our Christian life. We can call on the Lord to show us the way and to help us accept his wisdom when we receive it. So many times in my life, I have second-guessed God. And every single time, I have regretted it. God's wisdom is available to us as Christians, and we have to seek it out. It's not easy. It requires work. But it's vital to those who no longer want to live a life of bondage, but rather a life of freedom. And we should let go of our old selves. We should let go of our old selves. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. One of the most difficult challenges any Christian has to face is putting away the old things. We are not who we once were. We've all made mistakes. We have all made bad choices. Maybe you did something atrocious. Maybe you have been a horrible Christian. Remember, the Apostle Paul was guilty of killing Christians. But once redeemed, once forgiven, he started to live for God. He started to obey God. And he took off those old rags and he put on the new ones. The ones of righteousness. And he never looked back. We need to do the same thing. It's not easy. It requires work. 
but it is vital to those who no longer want to live a life of bondage, but rather a life of freedom. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Have he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, which both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Principle two. As Christians, we know the mystery of his will. It has been revealed to us. We have experienced it. We have been saved. We have received the gift of eternity. And so how do we apply this to our lives? Notice Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Application two. We as Christians need to share the mystery of his will with those we encounter in this life. We need to share the mystery of his will with those we encounter in this life. We have been given the most precious gift of eternal life. And Jesus says that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations. Question, how many disciples have you helped make? How many people have you come alongside of and taught to observe all the things God commanded you? I'm not saying that to make anybody feel bad, but the truth is we can all do a better job. We can all share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the folks in our lives, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends, and definitely with our family members. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you have also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Principle three, as Christians, we have been sealed. As Christians, we have been sealed. There is no going back, taking away, changing, altering, or ending up in the wrong place. And knowing this, We can live our lives with confidence. We can live our lives with confidence. Notice 1 John 3, 20 and 21. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Here are three easy ways to increase your confidence. First, as Christians, know that you have a purpose. Know that you have a purpose. You are not an accident. 
You have been chosen for eternity with God. And therefore, you can move through this life with a sense of purpose. Second, be humble. Be humble. Know that God has gifted you and provided you with all that you need and that you didn't earn any of it. So walk with purpose and humility. And third, live by God's standards. He says that we as Christians have been set apart. We are not of this world. We are his children. And we need to live and learn his ways. Psalm 143.10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightedness. I read about a 2016 national survey that said 18 to 24-year-olds report that having a clear purpose in life is a big part of being a real adult. The problem is most young people don't feel like they found that sense of purpose. More than 86% of young adults say that making decisions in line with their purpose makes them an adult. According to a national survey, but only 43% say that they have a clear picture of what they want in life. 36% say their career path aligns with life purpose. And only 30% know why they are here. Christian B. Wellen, a professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison, concludes, this study isn't good news. Coasting is existing, not thriving. The majority of young adults who say they don't have a clear picture of what they want in life also say they are existing but not thriving, while those with purpose more often say they are thriving. If you are a Christian, then you are more than somebody just existing. You are to the praise of his glory and should be thriving for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God in heaven, thank you for all that you have done in and through Jesus Christ to save us. Our gratitude never seems sufficient, Lord. We offer you our praise and our worship. I pray, Father, that you would work in each of our lives here today, that you would help us to see your will and your plan. Help us to see the big picture. Help us to live our lives with a sense of purpose. Help us to understand that we are a part of your plan. Give us the courage to do as you ask and share your gospel of this good news with the world. Help us to share the gospel with those in our lives. Help us, Father, to serve you all that we can. You are a good and gracious God. I am so grateful for this, this book to the Ephesians. I'm so grateful that you have inspired Paul to pen these words and that you have saved them through, etern through the last 2,000 years to bring to us today. Help us to read them, to learn them, to understand them, and apply them to our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.